welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going to be going uh, further in our study of Luke. Here we teach the Bible verse by verse and book by book. And we're uh, back in the study of Luke. We've been in on and off for many years. And uh, we hope to finish it soon. Uh, <laughs> I said that was a hope, not a promise. That was a hope. But we go by verse, verse by verse, and we now come in chapter 20 to uh, an encounter between Christ and some religious leaders that has a mocking challenge that's absurd, but Jesus takes the mocking and he gives it a majestic answer and teaches some mighty truths about our resurrection future. And so there's much here. Let us hear the word of God. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now He's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. (laughs) Good strategy. This is God's powerful word. It's eternity spanning. And I pray that he gives us deep insight into the realities of the resurrection that we've never seen before. In his mighty name, amen. You can be seated. Amen. Well, speaking of the resurrection or the idea of Christ's resurrection, I came across a truly surprising survey this last week. It's still hard for me to believe it's true. Uh, You know, a lot of the times when uh, they survey Americans about spiritual things, we're deeply disappointed in the low level of belief that people have about certain things. But uh, the, the survey that I saw this week was surprising for that reason. 
uh, Lifeway Research did a national search uh, uh, survey, and they asked uh, American adults this question. Do you believe the biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely accurate? Here's the number. 66% of all American adults said yes. That's stunning. That is a stunner. 66% of all American adults said that they do believe that the biblical accounts of the physical resurrection of Jesus are completely true. Now, a lot of people have taken a look at the survey because it was somewhat surprising. One of them was Christian author and apologist Rebecca McLaughlin, and she said this is a good news, bad news situation. She said, quote, the fact that two-thirds of Americans say they believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead makes me feel two things, hopeful and heartbroken. First, I feel hopeful because it suggests that twice as many Americans as attend church weekly might be open to doing so if they were invited. So this is a huge opportunity for Christians to invite friends who don't go to church to come to church if they do believe in the fundamental fact of the resurrection. That was a great observation. But then she says, I also feel heartbroken because the idea that someone would say that they believe Jesus actually rose from the dead, but, this belief, but that this belief would have so little impact on their life that they weren't even part of a church is truly tragic. This exposes the danger of cultural Christianity, she writes, the vague assent to Christian beliefs without any evidence of actual faith in Christ, end quote. Oh, so true. People believe in a resurrection, but they cast off the meaning of that. But it is eternity changing, however you believe in it, if you believe or disbelieve. So we're going to talk about the realities of the resurrection today that come out of this encounter. And I want to speak to you if, if there are a couple things true about your life. You may be, in fact, I hope you are listening to me in this, in this room today or online. I hope that you are one of those who does believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Christ. But maybe it's not having the deep impact that it could. I want to take you from what you might call a menial acceptance of the resurrection to a majestic understanding of it through the realities I want to teach you today. On the other hand, you might be a skeptic. You might be here for your own reasons, but they're not reasons dedicated to God. You might be watching or listening. You might be like those who challenge Jesus in this story, who attack the resurrection in this encounter. And I want you to see where you are in error, and what you will face if you don't believe. So both poles of the spectrum, so to speak, I want to talk to today, but really I just want to open the scriptures and let them do the speaking like I always seek to do. By the way, along the way, uh, I also want to answer as best I can from a human preacher's point of view, a simple but sincere question that many Christians ask, and that is, I'm going to heaven. I know that because Christ has saved me. I know my wife's going to heaven. But will we be able to stay married there? That is a very sincere question. I've been asked it many times. I've contemplated it myself. I mean, if, if, if you took vows that said, till death do us part, 
In the back of your mind might be the question, will death do us part? And how can heaven be fully heaven without my spouse in my life? We're going to touch on that because in the middle of his answer, Jesus touches on it. We're going to go uh, through the passage in two ways. We're going to take a look at the debate itself, and then we're going to go more deeply into the answer of Jesus and find a number of different realities of the resurrection that flow out of what he teaches. Let's take a look, first of all, at the debate about resurrection. This is the, the first few verses where the Sadducees are introduced, and they come up with this pathetic and absurd challenge. Uh, Let me put this in context for you again. You know, and now we've been back in Luke 20 for some weeks, that Luke chapter 20 and verse 1 basically starts a description of the final week of Christ's earthly life before crucifixion. It is known to us as Passion Week. Christ already has entered the city triumphantly. That was Luke 19. And and after his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, he has uh, cleared out the temple area of all the corrupt money changers and vendors that were offending the very presence of God in that great place. And now Christ has returned, and we're in the middle of that week, a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and he is spending his time teaching the people. Jesus is teaching, and another bunch of people are opposing him. And that's the whole narrative. Like I told you last week, chapter 20 has one grand theme to it, and that is gospel conflict. Christ preaching and representing himself as the Christ, the Messiah, and preaching the gospel over the people, it says in the first part of Luke 20. And Christ's opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, and all the rest, challenging him and opposing him. It's a chapter of gospel conflict. Now, they've challenged him a number of times already. Early in the chapter, they challenged him about whether he had the authority to teach these things and to cleanse the temple like he did. And Jesus surely showed that he did. Then they came at him with a a trap set around paying taxes to try and get him into a political bind and get him condemned by the Roman authorities. And that was defeated by Jesus. And now you have one more challenge. And it comes from a different group of people. So let me give you two things under this that will help you understand the first part of this passage. The first is, let's talk about the identities of the people involved, particularly those that are they're watching and attacking. The scripture says in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees. Now, their name may not be that familiar to you. You're probably familiar, if you've gone through the gospel with us, with the Pharisees, the conservative, ultra-legalistic self-appointed leaders of the Jewish people religiously. They were uh, uh, lovers of the law, but also setters of their own law. And they dominated the people and were in religious power over their hearts. And they became the great enemies of Jesus throughout his ministry. We know that. We've seen it. Well, this is a different group. These guys are known as the Sadducees. And They uh, do the talking in this particular attack. The Pharisees do the watching. So the Sadducees, it's almost like a tag team thing going on to try and defeat Jesus. They come with this attack and it gets defeated. They come with that approach and they get humiliated. And this has all been watched by the Sadducees. So the Pharisees have been knocked down in two rounds. The Sadducees step forward. Who were they? Well, they were a much smaller uh, group numerically than the Pharisees. 
And, uh, and yet they might have been small in number, but as one commentator pointed out, they were huge in influence. And that's because uh, they dominated the political landscape of Israel. The high priest was a Sadducee. In fact, the Sadducees had bought that office from the Romans some time before. And so the high priest, it was guaranteed to be in succession a Sadducee, not a Pharisee. They, they owned the priesthood, the high priest office, and many of the other priestly offices. And they were the dominant party in what was known as the Sanhedrin. You know, that was a group of 70 uh, Jewish leaders who made the decisions for Israel. It was sort of like a parliament. And uh, they were the ones that would, in a few days, condemn Christ to death. And the Sadducees dominated the, the, the Sanhedrin, that, that group of ruling elders, if you will. They also ran and operated the temple. They set all the rules for the temple, and they skimmed off the top all the money you could get from all that they uh, enforced in the temple. So they were extremely wealthy. So political power and financial power. But they were also uh, unique in their belief system. Unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch, the books that Moses had written. They didn't think the rest of the Old Testament was truly authoritative as God's word. So they only believed in the first five books, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. If you take a look at Acts chapter 26, pardon me, 23 and verse 8, we see the description by Luke the historian. He said, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Sadducees were different. They were uh, non-supernaturalists. They didn't believe in anything outside the material world and your material life. When you died, that was it. Didn't believe in the supernatural. Didn't believe in a spiritual realm. Didn't believe that angels existed. And didn't believe that you rose from the dead or had any life after you physically died. They were materialists like a lot of people are today. We were just biological beings here by accident. A couple molecules bumped together in the right white, white way to make you, you. And when you're done and your brainwaves stop, you that's you is done. But they were also rationalists. They didn't believe in the supernatural because they just didn't, they didn't think it was rational or logical. And so they mirror a lot of people today. In fact, they, they believed in God, but not very much about God. So they're sort of like the theologically liberal Christians that you hear about today. They believed in God, but they didn't believe very much about God, and they didn't believe in the supernatural. Now, they were the ones doing the attacking in this. The Pharisees had stood to the side. How were the Sadducees different than the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees who were watching this were not liberal. They were conservative. They believed in the whole Old Testament, and they believed in resurrection, according to the book of Acts. They believe that we are not just material beings. We go on after death. In fact, we will be resurrected for the life to come. Now, they had some odd views, though, about the resurrection. And uh, they believed that you're going to be raised in the same physical body, which in certain ways the scripture teaches you're still going to be you in resurrection. But they took it to some extremes. They believed that whatever age you were when you died, that was the age you would be in your resurrection future. I see some frowns. <laughs> it gets worse. 
They also believed that any defects you had physically, your body, the, the way you were physically at the time you died, you'd be resurrected with the same defects. I hear a lot of you over 50 saying, I'm not too much into this Pharisee resurrection thing. They would often debate about it. And they would sit together, I'm not kidding you, in the temple, and they would debate, okay, at the resurrection, do you believe that we're going to be raised and we'll be wearing the exact same clothes we died in or not? That's how absurd these guys were. But key to understanding this passage is something else. They also believed that when in the resurrection future, you'd be raised not only with the same physical body with all of its defects and the same age you were when you died, but you'd also be resurrected with all the same relationships. Same family, same marital partner, same children. And uh, that's where this all got started, this challenge. Because the Pharisees loved to argue with the Sadducees about, well, there is a resurrection, but the Sadducees would argue back and saying, well, the resurrection you you guys believe in is pretty pathetic. And so they would go back and forth, and the Sadducees had always used this particular argument against the Pharisees to show how silly their idea of resurrection was. And the Pharisees had never been able to answer it. So that takes us to strategies, the identities of the players. You see the strategies, what's being used here. The Sadducees didn't want Jesus around any more than the Pharisees did because Jesus was humiliating them. He'd thrown them out of the temple and he was taking away their prophet and threatening their religious rule. They wanted him dead just as much as the Pharisees did. And they decided to do it by discrediting him. They knew that the people at large as is often the case, believe the Bible for what it said, that there's going to be a resurrection. And they were going to get Jesus out in the middle of the people in the temple courtyard and hit him with this same argument. If you believe in the same resurrection these guys do, Jesus, you're as stupid as they are and we'll show it to the people. And we're going to come up with this silly illustration to show how dumb your idea is. So they, they had stumped the Pharisees with it before and made them look stupid. They were going to try and do the same to Jesus and discredit him. So that was their strategy. What was the strategy of Jesus? He didn't need a strategy because he is the truth. <laughs> He's his own strategy. So the encounter begins. And they come up with this absurd question. Teacher... Verse 20, 28, Moses wrote for us in the first part of the Bible, we do believe, the first five books, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25, that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his, for his line, for his brother. What was this all about? Well, they were quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 25, and this was a portion of the law that God gave to the nation of Israel. And it says in verse 5, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. In other words, there are several brothers. One of them gets married, but he dies before he can raise up a child to propagate his family, which is part of the original family line. And if that happens, 
his widow is not to marry a stranger outside the family line. It was to be kept inside the family line. And so Deuteronomy 25 says, her husband's brother shall take her to, to himself as wife and marry her to perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. That may seem confusing, but basically the family line was continued. So if a widow uh, is there and, and she's, been, she's childless, she's brought into the other brother's home as a wife and, uh, and she has a child through that relationship and the child and the name go on with the original family line. Why was that important? Israel was just about to move into the promised land and they were about to take possession of what God had promised and that was all going to be portioned out according to tribes and to families. It was exceedingly important in Israel's culture and in the plan of God for family lines to continue. That was why it was such a difficult disaster if you were a woman in Israeli society at that time like Hannah, for example, or Sarah, for example, and you're not able to bear a son, bear a child. So uh, this is what was faced here. And so they took this, this directive of God, which, by the way, served a great purpose. In fact, it was part of, of our history spiritually because the most notable illustration of how this law worked was the, uh, the life of Ruth. You remember her from the Old Testament? She uh, had a husband, and yet he died. And they were childless. And Ruth wanted to carry on that line. And uh, into her life, uh, God led uh, uh, a man named Boaz. Remember that story? She became his kinsman redeemer, and, or he, he, he did to her, and they married. And, and uh, when he took Ruth as his wife, they, they, they raised up a child named Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse, out of whose line Jesse became the father of David, who is the most important member of the Messianic line. And out of David, ultimately, generations later, was born uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God had a purpose for this rule, didn't he? And so that's God's noble purpose, but they take it and twist it to make it into an absurd accusation because they say, we know that God, Moses told us this, verse 28. So suppose a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, just like the Deuteronomy says, and the man takes the widow and raises up to, ra to raise up offspring for his brother. But suppose uh, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second died without children and the second and third took her and likewise they were taking this into an absurd extreme there were there ended up being seven marriages and seven childless moments and then they all die and go to heaven if they're raised in the next life like you say like the pharisees say Whose wife shall she be? If the Pharisees are right, that you're raised into all the relationships from your past into the future, whose wife is she going to be? They were using an argument we know today as reductio ad absurdum. That's, that's disproving a proposition by showing the absurdity to which it leads if you carry it to its logical conclusion. They were trying a, a, a mocking argument. They were nudging each other and, and saying, you know, they're smirking and saying, you know, the Pharisees just never been able to answer this one. Because when we've took it to the Pharisees, we just say, imagine heaven. If you come back just as you were, the same age, same body flaws, same relationships, there's just going to be endless arguments in heaven. These seven guys will be standing there saying, wait a minute, she's my wife. 
Why? Well, she was my wife on earth. No, 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 she was my wife on earth. And then they get into this kind of this shouting match. Well, she was my wife longer than she was your wife. <laughs> Believe me, every day I remember how long it was. No, no, just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 trust me. She's got just as much on him. And so they were sitting there saying, that's how silly this would be. It would just be endless arguments in heaven. And the poor woman is probably sitting in the corner saying, for crying out loud, well, one of you guys figured this out so I can get on with my everlasting life. <laughs> we laugh because we catch their point. Well, how does Jesus answer this? Well, now we go to the realities of the resurrection, and we go to his eloquent answer to their absurd question. It's the rest of the passage, beginning at verse 34. Jesus hardly dignifies their ridiculous challenge at all because he is the way and the truth, and he simply states the truth, and the truth overwhelms their mockery. And in his reply here we see several realities of the resurrection that's the second domain of what i want to present today there are realities that come out of what he teaches and how he answers that are so marvelous and also so well serious now as i explain these to you and go through you're going to understand the text as well but take note that's most of these statements kind of flow one into the other, so I'll repeat them a lot so you can get the flow of discovery. So Jesus answers them, and in his answer, we discover several realities to the resurrection. I'll just teach from the discoveries and then to the text. The first thing that we see in his answer is that eternity will be a divinely different age. Eternity will be a divinely different age. It will be a very unlike this one. And what Jesus does here is he destroys their whole premise <laughs> in basically one phrase. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, of course. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now notice here, Jesus says in one phrase, you guys are totally off base because whatever you experience in this age is not even to be able to be compared to what it'll be like in that age, the eternal age. Blew out their whole premise. Blew them out. Eternally will be a divinely different age. He refutes their premise. Nothing in eternity will be anything like what we see or experience now. And by the way, I would say, amen. <laughs> anything good here it's going to be eternally gooder there, <laughs> but in a way that you can't imagine. All, me, all these ideas in these books we write or the people that supposedly come back that talk about dimensions of heaven in terms we understand or that thrill us, that's nothing. That, 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 heaven, you, you don't read a lot about heaven in the Bible comparatively because I don't think it, we could ever bring it down to the human conception of most of what it's going to be like. It's going to be far, far more better. And, and, of course, everything that's bitter here is gone. Goner than gone. See, he challenged here in, in one stroke both groups of people. The Pharisees who were listening, he looked out at them on the edge of the crowd and says, no, you're wrong. Resurrection is not going to be a lot like this life. It's not going to be just a little bit better world where you 
live in your same clothes with your same illnesses? No. But then he looked at the Sadducees, and it's not going to be like this world at all. And he challenged their rationalism and their materialism. He says, you guys believe this life is all there is. Oh, no, my father is far more good than that. You don't understand, he said, either the word of God or the power of God. Now he moves on. The second reality. See, eternity will be a divinely different age. And then secondly, when God's people will live forever. Here he gets to the heart of their disbelief. They didn't believe in any supernatural domain, any eternality. Jesus says, oh, there is a fully real domain in the spiritual world and in the physical that is eternal. Verse 36. He says, those in that age cannot die anymore, verse 36, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What does Jesus say? Well, get back to the point that when we are resurrected, God's children are equal to angels. Now, be careful with this. Some people have had all these weird, you know, almost like you know, extraterrestrial ideas about what we're going to look like. And hey, you don't know. But some people have said we're just going to be turned into into angels just like them. No, it it, it says they are equal to angels. It doesn't say they're exactly like angels. In fact, we're going to be greater than the angels. We're created in the image of God right now. That makes us greater already. But when we are in heaven, our physical bodies, according to 1 John 3, are going to be just like Christ. Oh, we'll be greater in every way, able to know him in a deeper way and living in his resurrection power in a deeper way. So we're not going to be just, we're not going to be like them in in the sense of just like them and we're going to be greater to them. But in one way, he says, we are going to be equal to them. And what's that way? Like the angels, when we get to to resurrection land, we will not die anymore. Now that's important. As we see, Jesus built his argument about marriage so we're going to be equal to the angels in one sense that is we will be immortal just like they were they were created and they were created immortal not eternal they they had a beginning point but they were created to never die and the same number of angels exist today as have always existed biblically same number but not anymore they don't procreate, and there's no need for that because God made them a mortal being, immortal beings, so there's no possibility of them dying, and there's no need for procreation. So when we get to heaven, we'll be as, as, more, as immortal as they, and there will be no dying anymore. Amen? Amen? Thank you. But no need to procreate anymore. That'll be important. Keep that in your mind. Now we go to the third understanding. Not only will eternity be a divinely different age when God's people will live forever because Jesus said there'll be no more death and we'll be sons of the resurrection. But thirdly, and our deepest needs will be met by God. Because he says, not only will we not die anymore because we're equal to angels, but we will be sons of God. When you were a son of something biblically, it meant that was your total identity and your total sufficiency. And what he's saying here is when we get to heaven, God will be the source of everything we experience and enjoy and need. We will be be endlessly satisfied in him. Child of God, rejoice, because one day you'll be 
a child of heaven. We know that in Revelation chapter 21, this is described in verse 3, when John had a vision of the eternal place and the eternal state, he said, I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne representing God, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be, with his, pe- they will be his people, and God himself will, will be with them as their God. Translation, all that is God will be understood and enjoyed by us. And even though we're finite, we'll never stop learning how wonderful he is. But all that he is will be available for all that we need or ever could want. He will be our total satisfaction. In verse 4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, Sadducees. This life is not your best life. That life is your real life. In fact, everything you believe is real now, as materialist and rationalist, is going to pass away, and the greatness is yet to come. Oh, he took them apart, word by word, didn't he? But you see, when we get to heaven, we're going to be in a divinely different age where we're going to live forever and our deepest needs will be met by God. Now, why is that important in his argument? Because if these things be true, we get to the fourth statement. Jesus says, therefore, there will be no need for marriage anymore in the eternal state. You may disagree with how I interpret this, but... I believe I'm giving you the weight of the words of Jesus because he then, he then says, as you follow the text here in Luke 20, they cannot die anymore, verse 36. They're all sons of God. Look back up at, at verse 35. Those who attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So that's a pretty point black statement. So he proves it in terms of why that's true. And the verses to follow, but Jesus said, neither marry or given in marriage. He says, they're neither given nor given in marriage. Verse 36, for they cannot die anymore, and they are sons of God. Now, why, is, why did he use those two as proofs? Well, because God designed marriage to do two great things, didn't he? Think back to when God introduced marriage in the book of Genesis. In my opinion, from this passage, I think Jesus was teaching that most likely, from my point of view, you may disagree, there'll be no marriage in heaven simply because there will no longer be a need for it. When God established marriage, he did so to fulfill certain needs and and goals. First, he saw that Adam was in need of a companion, didn't he? Genesis 2, Lord God said It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And Eve was the solution to the problem of Adam's loneliness as well as his need for a helper, someone to come alongside him as his companion and to go through this life by his side. In heaven, however, there will be no more loneliness for we will all be sons and daughters of God. And he just said in Revelation 21, I'll meet your every need and then some. You'll have an intimate relationship with me that outruns anything you'll ever have, you ever had on earth. So there will not be any need because there won't be any loneliness, no need for 
a helper who's greater than God. And by the way, we'll also be surrounded by multitudes of believers to relate with, and all of our needs will be met, including the need for companionship. So that first need will not exist in heaven in, according to the scriptures. But then there was a second need. You remember what that was? God created marriage as a means of procreation and the filling of the earth with human beings. Be fruitful and multiply. That was his instruction to the first married couple. And so, however, heaven we have already seen, there's no more death. There's no more need for procreation. There's no more need to, to defeat death by, by the, the by procreation of, of people. And so if you look at it from a certain point of logic, when we're in heaven, the two fundamental purposes of marriage will no longer need to be fulfilled. Now you look at that, and you know, I, I know that, that that's a, a dimension that, that may bother you or trouble you, and believe me, when we all get to heaven, if we find out I'm right, it won't matter because you're going to be enjoying him just as much as I am. And if we find out that, no, you believe that you are going to stay married in heaven and we find out that you're right, you and your wife can look at me and say, told you so. <laughs> and me and my wife can say, okay, let's go out to dinner. <laughs> Heard there's a great new sushi place on Pluto. I mean, Whatever. It's not going to matter either way because of the greatness of it all. And that brings me to the next point. See, there will no longer be need for marriage there, number five, because there will be something far better. Him. See, don't forget that earthly marriage is a picture of something else that's heavenly. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5, the marriage relationship is a picture of our marriage relationship with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And once we're present with Christ, that earthly relationship will no longer be needed to illustrate anything because we're going to be living the reality of being with Jesus. And that's far better than any earthly relationship I know of. Far better than anything we can have here. That's why in heaven, Jesus is called the bridegroom and the church is called his bride. And the first celebration we're going to get to after the rapture and we go into heaven and head to the Father's house is called the wedding supper of the Lamb. Who do you think he's married to? So, evidently, there would be no such thing as marriage in heaven. Jesus argues it here, and I'm risking it here. That does not mean, however, that husbands and wives will no longer know each other in heaven. Of course not. We know that's not true at all. And also doesn't mean that a husband and wife could not still have a close relationship in heaven. There's dynamics to this that I don't know and you don't know, but whatever it's going to be for us in heaven, it's going to be God's perfect design. It's going to be the best you have ever wanted, that you both ever wanted or that you ever wanted with a, a wife or husband that's been taken from you through death, it's all going to be better we can, than we can imagine. Far better. So now, Jesus has answered their absurd question about marriage in heaven with a majestic teaching about something greater in heaven. And so he did that, and now he shifts in verse 37, and we're going to, get, and we're going to run to the end here. He continues with another principle. That is, principle six, all human beings 
continue to exist after death. Here he attacks their materialism and their rationalism. And he says, but that the, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. Now, this is interesting. He challenges them on the section of the Old Testament that they did believe in. They believed only in the first five books. Jesus says, fine. In, the, in, in Moses itself, we know about the resurrection. We know that God t- tells us that all people after death still live. And he refers back to Genesis, uh, pardon me, Exodus chapter 3, when God confronted Moses out in the wilderness and called him into leading Israel. It was the burning bush experience, and God was in the bush in a supernatural appearance. He said, Moses, take off, take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. And Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am Yahweh. I am that I am, and I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, when God spoke to Moses, you have to admit, verse 37, he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The point of this is Jesus is saying, Moses met the eternal God at that bush Years and years and years and years after old Abraham and old Jacob and old Isaac had died. And yet he says, I am their God. God's not the God of people that are dead and cannot respond to him and that have no being. If that was the case, he would have said, I was their God. I was their God. No, he said, I am the God of Isaac and the God of Abraham, and the God of Jacob. It teaches something very very encouraging here, and that is the believers that die physically are just what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. They're absent from the body, but they're present with the Lord because he's the God of the living and the dead. Now, they're present right now. We know the Bible teaches us in, in their spirit. Their bodies lay here on the earth. They exist here on the earth. They're dead, but... At a future great resurrection, they're going to be resurrected, their spirit joined to a mighty resurrection body. And God says, Jesus says here, for all live to him. My father's in charge of all existence, and he keeps them alive eternally. I'm going to get the last one, one or two here. To follow his argument, next, not only are all human beings going to exist after death, but all human beings one day will be physically resurrected. He says, for all live to him. God's the the giver of life, gave you life spiritually and physically, didn't he? Didn't he? You are going to live to him again, and he's not going to just raise part of you. You're not just going to be this weird little soul flitting around in this strange spiritual space called heaven. He created you physically, he'll raise you physically because he did the same thing to his son. Only now, when your next event is going to be having a physical experience in body like his son does. So resurrection is ahead for someday all believers. The spirit will be joined to a resurrection body. You say, when is that going to happen? Well, the scripture is pretty clear in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it says that it's going to happen at the return of the Lord. We know that our church, we teach that's the the rapture of the church that's coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 
Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery, something that hasn't been revealed until these days. We shall not all sleep in death. We shall not all remain physically in the grave, but we shall all be changed when in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. There's so much there. I don't have time. So when's it going to happen? At the rapture of the church. (laughs) When he comes, all those in this age, spirit joined to bodies. And you say, what are our bodies going to be like? Well, just one word, glorious. I mean, just look at the one comparison he makes. You're going to be raised imperishable. You were perishable, but you'll be raised imperishable. Everything about your resurrection body is described by the word imperishable. What What? If, if, if your body's perishable, we understand that. Our perishable bodies right now are weak. They're limited. They're sickly. They're aging. Can't run away from that. They're sinful. <laughs> they're the locus of sin where our flesh lives today. They're mortal. But if they're imperishable, take everything on that list and imagine the opposite. No longer weak. Oh, but mighty and powerful. We're going to be like Jesus walking through walls. (laughs) Limited? No, unlimited then. You can't imagine what you'll be able to do physically and what your resurrection body will be capable of. It'll be equipped for the infinite. Sickly? Oh, no. No more dying, no more aging, no more disease, no more death. Sinful? Nope. Oh, not anymore. The greatest thing about heaven for some is that they'll never sin against their master again. Mortal? Nope. Swallowed up in immortality, he says. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to us as a church family? It means that every beloved believer that we ever were lost in death in this fellowship or you've ever lost in death in your life, is right now alive and in spirit worshiping God the Father today. Absent from the body, present with the Lord in the mighty throne room of heaven. And there right alongside will be Abraham and is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For us, that means our beloved Phil and our beloved Ray and our beloved Carlos and our dear Chris swept from our life in ways that were not expected. And every believer swept from your life are all right alongside Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're in full voice of worship. And one day, we'll all join them in resurrection. They're worshiping and waiting to be joined by us. Oh, I believe in the resurrection. All human beings will one day be physically resurrected. Now my last two, and here it gets somewhat serious for you if you're one of the Sadducees. 
Eighth principle is that some people will rise to eternal glory and some people will rise to eternal judgment. Jesus says, for all live to him. Not just the believing soul, but all souls were created by him and he will raise them again and they will stand before him. He's in control of all lives from now through eternity. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, the Bible speaks of two resurrections. It says in Revelation 20, verse 20, verse 6, blessed are those who take part in the first resurrection. Who's that talking about? Believers. The first resurrection. When he comes for us in that wonderful moment of the rapture. But then it says there's a second resurrection. What's that referring to? In Revelation chapter 20, it's the resurrection at the end of human time after the millennium. And when God raises every soul and unites it with a resurrected body that never believed in his son, that rejected his love, and they're going to get it resurrected too, but they're going to be given bodies that will last eternally in judgment. And they will stand before the great throne of God, and there it will be too late. For all live to him, and all will face him. And so the last reality comes into play today if you're hearing this your eternal destiny is in your hands for now and see that's where Christ left it he left it the silent implication there is a plea to these blind rationalistic materialistic pathetic Sadducees these skeptics about the soul he was giving them a chance to see all this truth. But they did nothing with it. The end of our text says they simply no longer dared to ask him any question. Nobody was struck with the reality of it and stepped forward and said, Rabbi, tell me more. It was their opportunity to believe, but they simply fell silent. And I would end my comments today by asking, how about you? Where do you stand on the resurrection? If you're a believer, do you not only believe it, but I hope after these words do you understand it in a more majestic way? Are you looking forward to the indescribable? (laughs) How do you do that? (laughs) That's what we get to do. Or are you a skeptic? Are you a rationalist? Are you standing in the crowd like the the Sadducees? My answer to you is his. He said, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, I can only prove so much about Christian truth and about the Bible to you if you're a skeptic. I can only take you so far with my human arguments. And at some point, you're going to have to both accept the word of God for what it says and the power of God for what you can't imagine is true. That's what everybody has to do when they come to faith. And so if you're a skeptic today, I challenge you to a decision of faith. Ultimately. Because your eternal destiny is in your hands for now. Please choose.